Let's open it up for prayer real quick, and then we're going to get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, the way that you are constantly at work in our lives. We thank you for the Word of God that is uh, always available to us to study, to read, and to apply to our lives. And so this morning, we're grateful that we can come together as men, that we can open up the Word of God together, and we can learn what you have to say to us as men. And I pray as we look at this command, Father, this morning about abiding in Christ, that we would take it to heart, that we would not just hear it, but that we would obey it, that we would apply it, that we would live it and watch what it does to our lives. Watch what it does to the kingdom. And Father, we just thank you again for this time together. We uh, pray that you would continue to guide and direct our steps as we attempt to live the life that you've called us to live and the power that you've given us to live it in. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read this passage to you. You've, you've just read it. You've just discussed it. You've looked at the definitions for the word remain. Let me read it to you from the Net Bible again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. He prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will bear more fruit. You are clean already because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I I in him bears much fruit, because apart from me you can accomplish nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a branch and dries up, and such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and are burned up. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit and show that you are my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this that one lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves because the slave does not understand what his master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have revealed to you everything I heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that remains, so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This I command you to love one another. Well, you've just spent a little bit of time looking at John chapter 15. This is part of what's called the upper room discourse. And it's so-called because it took place in the upper room. And this is uh, really starting in John chapter 13. We see Jesus meeting with his disciples. You know, they went up to the upper room and they uh, had the last supper with uh, the Lord. And he washed the disciples' feet. Uh, It's the night of his betrayal. It's the night of his arrest. It's the night that Judas has just walked out the door on his way to betray him to the to the high priest. And so this is this is an eventful night. This is a watershed moment in the life of the disciples. And chapter 15 is right smack dab in the middle of it. And so he's just had this this last Passover meal with the disciples. He's washed their feet and then he's got a few last words to say to them. Now, we're studying the commands of Christ, right? We've looked at 
listen to me. We've looked at repent, believe in me. And now we've come to abide in me. Here's a few of the things he's told them. Uh, If you back up to chapter 14, just to give you an idea of what he's telling these guys, this is the, the last moment he's got with them. He's announced in John chapter 13 that he's going to leave them behind. Can you imagine how that impacted those guys? Because what was their perspective of him? He is the Messiah. He's the king. He's come to set up his kingdom on earth, and we're going to get to rule with him. And now he's saying, no, 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 I'm leaving you behind. It's not what you think. John chapter 14, he told them he's going to prepare a place for them. I don't know that that really resounded real well with them at this point because, wait a minute, you're leaving us, but you're going to go prepare a place. But it doesn't sound like it's in Jerusalem. That's where they wanted the place. That's what they argued about. That's what they wanted. He told them he's going to return again someday. Kind of the good news, bad news. I'm leaving you behind, but I'm going to come back someday. John chapter 14, he says that he is the only way. He tells them, I am the way. I'm the only way. Nobody else can come to the Father but through me. He also tells them, I'm going to leave you another helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Again, I don't know that this was like drinking water from a fire hose for these guys. I don't think they comprehended any of it. I just think their heads are spinning. Because nothing is as they thought it would be. And so, again, this is just information overload for these guys. He tells them he would appear to them after his resurrection. I'm, I'm going to come back and I'm going to appear to you, but first I've got to die, and then I've got to be raised again. Again, I don't think they fully comprehended this. Then chapter 15, he goes into this teaching about the vine, the vine and the branches. Now this, I was talking to Doug Cecil. If you want to know more about the uh, Upper Room Discourse, next Sunday, 6.30 at night, he's beginning a series. It'll be in this room on the Upper Room Discourse. And I was talking to him about that this passage is so full of information that there's no way I'm going to even be able to touch it. Uh, we're just going to brush the surface because there's so much packed into the, all the imagery of what it means to be the vine and the branch and what it means to bear fruit and what it means to abide. And I mean, we could do an eight, 18-week series just on the word abide alone. So we're just going to hit it from the 36,000-foot level. But my goal this morning is to hopefully help us understand a little bit more about what it means to abide in him. Because it's one of those, it's, a, it's church speak. You know, I'm getting more and more tired of church speak in my life, of, you know, just abide. What does that mean? Let us have peace. What does that look like? You know, just, just relax in him. Rest in him. Well, you rest in him. You know, right now I've got... Right now I've got anxiety. What do I do with that, you know? And I, I'm really, for my own self, selfish reasons, I, I really want to get a handle on when he says abide, what in the world does that mean? Because if you're like me, I'm tired of people telling me to, to rest, to abide, have patience, you know, let go and let God. Well, like, every time I do that, it seems to get worse. What does it mean? So hopefully we're going to touch on that this morning. Well, as we look at this, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that the disciples are getting ready to enter into a whole new relationship with Jesus Christ. They have spent the last three years of their life walking the roads of that area of the world with the Master, eating with Him, sleeping with Him, uh, debating with Him, watching Him. He's been healing. He's 
they've been healing. They've been doing all kinds of incredible things with the master for three years. But now their relationship is radically about to change. We're talking a radical change. And it all it kind of culminates on this passage and this event in the upper room. And the relationship's going to have to change because the circumstances are about to change. Everything for these guys is, is, a, is about to change. Now, they've had, they've had it pretty easy for three years. Now, yeah, they didn't really have a place to stay and they didn't have a home and they'd left everything behind and they're walking the streets and they're, you know, they knew they were in trouble with the Pharisees. And, but they had had it pretty, pretty cushy walking with the master. It ain't going to be that way much longer. Look at this. This is from John chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. If you belong to the world, he tells the disciples, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Hey, great news, master. Glad to hear it. I've always wanted to be hated by the world. And persecution, man, I wake up every morning looking for it. These guys, it was about to change. And when he says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, they don't have a clue what he's talking about at this point because the persecution's yet to come. And it's coming heavy. It's coming big time. Then he goes on, he says this in chapter 16, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you... Now, didn't that really resound well? Whoa, whoa, wait, wait, Lord, rewind. Anybody what, kill? What? In fact, a time is coming when anyone kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Who's that remind you of? How about Saul? How about Saul, the great persecutor of the church? What did he think he was doing? A service to God by killing Christians until God got a hold of him. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. Gee, thanks a lot. Thanks for the warning. Um, everything's about to change for these guys. Their world is about to be rocked. They're going to be left behind by their master. The very guy that they all left everything behind to follow is leaving them. Man, that's, that's, that's great news, master. Then he tells him, you're going to get rejected by your peers. You, you won't even be welcome in the synagogue. And for a Jew, what's, that's home. Man, if I can't go to the synagogue, wh where do I go? The day's coming, guys, where you won't even be welcomed by your peers. And you're going to be hated by the world. They will hate you to the point where they will want to kill you. And they will eagerly seek your death. Eagerly. I mean, Paul was zealous about killing Christians. He loved his job. Isn't that amazing? How about, you know, I, I, I've always wanted job satisfaction. He had it. I mean, this guy loved persecuting Christians. Everything's being changed. Their whole circumstance is going to be changed. And so I really think as I look at this passage, and it is so jam-packed, the one thing that I really get out of this is it contains the key to their survival. How in the world, based on what he's telling them, I'm leaving you behind, I'm going to be persecuted, I'm going to be hung on a cross, I'm going to resurrect, but I'm going back to the Father, you're going to get left here, 
and you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated, you're going to be chased, you're going to be... How do you survive that? How do you maintain? And I'm convinced that chapter 15 contains the key. How are they going to survive all that was headed their way? And don't you know that that was all going through their heads that night? And don't you know that at least Peter was wanting to ask some questions, but by this time he's learned to just keep your mouth shut. You know, I know they're sitting there going, wait, 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 wait. Let's back up and talk about the persecution again. Let Explain that a little bit. Why? They had questions. They had concerns. They had fears. How in the world are we going to survive this when you leave? And you're going to see the way, if you go back and you study the gospel, the way many of them thought they were, they were going to survive it, what did they do when he died? They went back to doing what they used to do, fishing. You know, just go back to my old way of life. This is how I'm going to survive. I'm just going to have to go back to what I used to do. That was not the key. This is the key, the key to survival. 15 verse 4 says, Abide in me, remain in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. This is not a suggestion. This is not good advice from the master. This is an imperative command to the disciples and to you and I. Abide in me. You want to survive in this world? You have got to abide in him. It is, a, it is a command from the lips of the master, and he expects us to obey it. Otherwise, we will never make it. And that's why many of us struggle in our walk is because we don't have a clue what it means to abide in him, to remain in him. We've heard the words, and we may even encourage other people to do it, but we don't have a clue what it means to do it. So just for them and for us, how do you survive in this world the key is abiding. One of the things that hit me as I was studying it this week is that every one of these commands we've looked at are for a lifetime. So anytime Jesus commands you and I, and remember I set this whole thing up the very first week, is that all of these commands are impossible to keep. They're impossible because we need him to do it. And he wants us to respond, Lord, I can't remain. I can't abide. I don't even know how. Great. I'm going to show you how. If we could do it, if anybody could live this life, everybody would do it. But the fact is, none of us can do it in and of ourselves. But we're to do it for a lifetime. For instance, repent. The very first one we looked at, we're to do it repeatedly, over and over and over again. Repent. Not just to get saved, but to repent of the sins we commit daily. It's, it's a habit. It's a way of life. We're to believe consistently, not just to get saved. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I place my faith in him, and I'm going to heaven. Great. And now go live the life you want to live until he comes again, or he takes you home. No, you believe daily. You believe consistently. How about listen? We talked about that last week. Listen constantly. You know, we, we listen for the call, I got saved, and then we, like, turn off the hearing aid. And we live the rest of our lives and we don't listen anymore. I'm going to heaven. Listen constantly. Listen constantly. And remain relentlessly. Remain relentlessly. Abide relentlessly over and over and over again. I love what John Piper says. Jesus demands the engagement of our minds and our hearts every day of our lives. A transaction or a salvation experience with Jesus 
in the past that has no ongoing expression in our lives was a false transaction. Man, that's what he's talking about here. Is, and we're not going to unpack all of this, but when he starts talking about branches being burned and all that, it's a false salvation. And many people sitting in pews and churches all across the city and all across this country have a false sense of security because they have never really had a transaction with the living Savior because there's no fruit. There is no fruit in their life. There's nothing going on. And this passage is pretty powerful when you start looking at if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and he dries up and they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned. That has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It's you never had it to begin with. And see, in the church today, we, we're real skitterish about, you know, I, 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 it's not up to me to judge you. It's not up to me to look at you and you don't have any fruit in your house. That's, that's between you. The scriptures are so clear that you and I should have fruit in our lives. And if we do not have fruit, this passage tells me there's something wrong. Wake up and smell the coffee. If you do not have fruit in your life, there's, a, there's good reason to look back and go, hmm, I wonder. I wonder if that transaction ever really took place. Did it really take place? Well, what does abiding mean? You've looked at these definitions and there's a whole bunch of them. The Greek word could be translated remain, and that's how the Net Bible and many other translations uh, translate it. It means to reside, to stay, to continue. It carries the idea of a, a dwelling or staying someplace as in home. You, you, you dwell someplace, you remain someplace, you remain at home. And in John chapter 14, he refers to dwelling places that he's prepared for them. He says, I'm, I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's a dwelling place. It's an abode. It's, it's the same basic word. It's where you will abide. It's where you're going to stay for eternity. And so this morning, I'm going to take that one aspect and try to unpack it and try to get our, our hands around it so we can understand what it means to abide or remain in Christ because it's one of the, again, it's church speak. It's the, theology speak, you know. Abide. Well, what does it mean? And how do I live that out? And what does it look like in daily life? And so what I want to concentrate is the idea of home. It's to make our home in him. Just as he makes his home in us. It's, it's to make my home in him. And we'll, we'll expand that a little bit more. It's to make Jesus Christ our dwelling place. So when you abide in him, when you remain in him, he becomes your dwelling place. He becomes the the place you run to for safety. And it's an idea you find all throughout the Old Testament. We're just going to look at a few passages this morning. Psalm 91, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The place where they go, the place where they turn, the place that they run to. Also, Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. He's your dwelling place. He's your home. I love this reference. Psalm 61, You have been for me a strong tower from the enemy. Where do you go when you get in trouble? When all hell breaks loose in your life, where do you run to? What do you turn to? Who becomes your dwelling place? Who becomes your strong tower? 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Do you really believe that? Is that who you run to? Do you run to your friends? Do you run to your checking account? Do you run to this? Do you run to that? Where do you run? Do you run to some substance? You know, what, where do you turn when things are pressing against you? Well, here's a question. What does it mean to make the Lord Jesus your permanent dwelling place, your home? How do we make him our home? And, and to, and to kind of unpack that a little bit, here's some thoughts. Think about home. Now, I'm hoping home means something to you, you know, that your home really is a special place. If not, we need to talk. But here's what home should mean. Home is where your heart is, right? We've heard that phrase. I love my home. I love to be at home. I love to be with my family. I love to be with my wife. I love to be with my kids. Home is where my heart is. And when I'm away from home, if, if, if I travel or if I have to be away for an extended period... I call home because my heart's there. That's where my heart is. I don't want to be in some other city. I don't want to be someplace else. I want to be home. And think about that in terms of Jesus Christ. Is, is he where your heart really is? Is your heart someplace else? How about this? Home is a place where, to which you return. It's where you go home. You know, even when I was in college and I was away from the Lord, I loved going home, even though it always involved guilt. You know, because I knew I was away from the Lord. And when I got home with my parents, they never said anything to me, but I would just feel this overwhelming guilt because of the life I was living. But I loved seeing them. I loved going home. I loved the memories. I loved the smells. I loved seeing my room. I loved seeing home is is where you return. Where the prodigal son want to go after you tried everything else? Where do you want to go? Home. Even though he was willing to be a slave to his father, just to go there. I would rather go home and be a slave than live like this. Does, is that Jesus Christ to you? Would you rather run to Jesus Christ than anything else? Is he your home? Home is where you feel comfortable. Man, I go home and I, I get really comfortable. When I used to office at home, um, you know, I didn't have a lot of client meetings, so I just, you know, I dressed however I wanted to dress. I can't do that here at the church. I'd probably get arrested, but, you know, I love being home because I can be who I want to be and who I am, and I can let my hair down, I can relax. Do you feel that way around the Lord? Do you feel comfortable around Him? How about this? Home is a place of safety and security, that idea of the strong tower, a dwelling place. Is Jesus Christ your place of safety and security? You know what a lot of us feel when we get close to Jesus? What do we feel? We feel guilt. We feel, I don't measure up. Uh, we don't want to get close. But he should be a place of safety and security. Home is a place where you want to bring your friends. You know, when's the last time you wanted to bring a friend to meet the Jesus you know? Or are you kind of embarrassed? You know, if you really love him, if you're abiding in him, you'd want to bring everybody you know to come be around him. You want people in your home. You want people to enjoy what you enjoy. And home is at the center of what we do. Home is the center of what we do. You know, it's, it's, it, everything in my life revolves around my home. It's where my kids are. It's where everything happens. And sometimes too much happens. 
too many schedules, too many people going too many different directions, but it is the base of my operations, not my office here at the church, not my car, it's home. Home is where you find your strength for life. When I'm really tired, where do I go? I go home and I get recharged and I wake up and start another day. But it's where I get strength for my life. It's where I get encouragement. It's where I get challenged. It's where I get strength. And it's where the things I love the most are found. Think about all of these things in reference to Jesus Christ being your dwelling place, being the place where you remain, where you stay, where you abide. You know, it's, it reminds me of an old hymn and having... I've sung this song so many times, but, it, you know, this, this world is not our home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Where's your home? Where is it you really want to stay? Where is it you really want to abide? Because, guys, this world, and we've said this so many times, but we can't say it enough. This world is not your home if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. This is not your home. It's really not your home. Look at John 15, 19. What does he say? If you, disciples, were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were of the world, what's the inference there? You're not of this world. This isn't your home anymore. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Hey, guys, when I chose you, you no longer are part of this world. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and he's chosen you, you do not belong in this world anymore. This is not your home. How about this one? John 17. I have given them your word. This is the, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father on our behalf. What does he say? Father, I have given them your word and the world hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. We are not of this world. This is not our home. This is not where we're to get comfortable. He also prayed, I don't ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. How much more clearly can he put it? You and I are not of this world. But what's the problem we have? I like this world. Man, I I can feel real comfortable in this world at times. And I can fall in love with this world. And I can become a part of this world. But again, in his great priestly prayer, I am no longer in the world, yet they themselves are in this world. We're in this world, aren't we? Every morning when you wake up, what do you have to deal with this world? It's everywhere. We have to make a living in this world. We have to deal with this world. We have to put up with this world. We have to exist in this world. They are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. We are in this world, but we are not to be of this world we're not to love this world and one of my favorite passages first john 2 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him because all that is in the world the desire of the flesh the desire of the eyes the arrogance provided by material possessions is not from the father but is from the world do not love the world where where's your home where, where do you run to? Where do you go for strength? You know, this idea of abiding in Christ, I, I want to be real careful of this because it's very clear in this passage that we also have to obey. We have to keep his commands. 
It's not some nebulous kind of warm fuzzy that I just I can just run to home and just kind of lay there and do nothing. Because this passage makes it clear that I have to keep his commandments. If you're going to abide in him, you've got to keep his commandments. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. When, when, when we're abiding, when we're resting in him, and we understand how much he loves us, we'll want to keep his commandments. We'll want to obey him. Why? Because we know he knows what's best. Even when it doesn't always make sense to us. So com- o- obedience is a big part of this. But first, we've got to understand just how much he loves us and just how much he needs to be home to us. Well, if we abide, what does abiding produce? What does remaining in Christ produce? If we really make him our home, our dwelling place, this passage tells me that when we make him our home, it results in joy or it results in fruit, fruit. You know, one of the things that hits me real hard is it says it's impossible to be fruitful apart from Jesus Christ and remaining in him. You cannot produce fruit. What's the illustration here? The analogy is you've got a, a, a branch attached to a vine, and if it doesn't remain attached, it can't produce fruit. Doug used a great illustration um, of cut flowers. You know, you, you cut flowers, you give them to your wife, and he, he asked me, he said, are they alive or are they dead? They're dead. Why? Because just give it enough time, and they will wilt and die because they've become detached from the life source and he used the term cut flower christians christians who have never really truly been christians we can't lose our salvation but we can appear like we're something that we're really not we have no attachment to the life source nothing is flowing through us and therefore we produce no fruit we can't be fruitful apart from remaining and abiding in him It says, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. We are to bear fruit, guys. I'm to bear fruit. You're to bear fruit. It says, abide in me and I in you as the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. You will not produce fruit if you don't have an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't remain in him, if you don't. And I think even as Christians, we can be fruitless Christians. It doesn't mean we're not saved. It just means that. Many of us have have not produced fruit in a long time because why? We're not abiding. We're not remaining. We're not at rest in Him. And so we produce no fruit, but we should be. Fruitfulness is proof, we're told by Jesus, that we're His disciples. It's proof. When I produce fruit, it proves I'm one of His. He says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. How do you prove you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? By how much scripture you know? By how many verses you can quote? By how many times you show up at church? By how much you tithe? By how many notches you have in your Bible for how many people you led to the Lord? it's, It's fruit. It's the fruit in your life. It's what Galatians talks about. It's it's. It's the fruit of the Spirit, I believe. It's those attributes of Christ's likeness that appear in your life in all of the worst times. Not the good times, but the tough times. When when in Christ, when He's the place we want to be, the result is prayer power. In other words, when we remain in Christ and He becomes the place we want to be more than any place else, it, it produces prayer power. 
what does he say? Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Man, I don't know about you, but that is that, that verse just blows me away. Because I sit there and I think, man, have I really ever experienced that in my life? That whatever I ask, it will be done for me? What's the key? Abiding, remaining, resting, staying, continuing, hanging on to. Use whatever word you want to use, but when he becomes my primary place of refuge, strength, he's my home, he's my dwelling place. The key is when I'm that close to him, guess what happens to my prayer life? It changes. And I don't pray pray for the same things I used to pray for. I don't pray, pray the same selfish prayers I used to pray for. I don't pray for God to bless my decisions. I ask him what his will is. And that's why it's, it will be done for you. Suddenly, as you abide in him and get close to him, things change. I don't want the same things I used to want. Remember when the disciples were arguing about who was going to sit on the right and the left? And they even got their mom involved. Do you ever hear them arguing about that after the resurrection? What happened? Their desires changed. They no longer wanted to sit in the right and the left. They had a new priority in their lives. It wasn't selfish anymore. and It wasn't self-centered. They went from being selfish and self-centered to sacrificial, and they laid it all on the line, and most of them died a martyr's death for the cause of Christ. So when it says, it will be done for you, whatever you ask, what it's saying is you will be asking differently, and God will do what you ask. But the key is abiding. It's prayer power. When we make ourselves at home in Christ, the result is joy. Anybody in this room want joy in their life? Not happiness. I'm so sick of happiness. You know, happiness is so fleeting. You know, you watch some show and you laugh for about 15 seconds and you turn it off or the news comes on and their happiness goes down the tubes. Happiness is not what we need. We need joy. These things I have spoken, Jesus says, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Joy. What you and I need in our lives is joy. I don't know if this has helped you, confused you. If anything, I hope it's challenged you to, to come to grips with Am I abiding in Christ? Am I resting in Him? Is He my home? Is He my dwelling place? Is He where I want to run to when things are tough? There are guys in this room this morning who who are going through tough times. Some I know about. Some I don't know about. Where are you going to turn? Where are you going to run? Who's your high tower? Who's your strong tower? Who's your home? Who's your dwelling place? Let's say you're the prodigal son right now. Where are you going to run to? Who are you going to turn to? Can you go home? Can you go back to the Lord and know that he's there for you? The disciples were faced with a dilemma. Jesus Christ was leaving. Circumstances were changing. Life was going to be totally different than ever before. What was the key to survival? Abiding. Remaining. You know, one of the things in this, I want to end with this because it's so critical. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But this is important. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Man, I know there are guys out here this morning who hate the pruning process. 
I hate the pruning process. I hate it. I despise it. I loathe it. I run from it. I pray him to take it away. I do not like to be pruned. But what does this verse tell me? I will not, I will not, I cannot bear fruit without pruning. You know, we, we have crepe myrtles in our front yard. And my wife and I have this debate every year. She's the hacker. I mean, she hacks those poor trees to death. And I look at them and I go, honey, what, God, you butchered them. Just, they just look like stubs. But what happens every spring? They come back fuller than ever. And I have to apologize. You know, that's the pruning process. It looks so hideous. It looks so devastating. It looks like no good can come out of this. But what happens every spring? Beauty. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I don't know what God's going to do in your life. But I can guarantee you this. If you are in him and abide in him. And part of abiding in him is trusting him that he knows what in the heck he's doing. And so when he starts clipping and snipping and, and cutting away and you're like, Lord, what, hey, I don't like this. I don't, what do you, trust him because he knows what he's doing and you will bear more fruit. There are guys in this room who I know and I've watched and I've seen God prune them and cut them and even chop on them and I've watched them cry and I've cried with them and I've, I've heard them go through pain. But guess what I know? Those guys are different today than they were six months ago. Those guys are more godly today and more Christ-like today than they were six months ago. And what produced it? The pruning, the pain, a little bit of suffering, a, a momentary light affliction. And you know what I have to really watch? And I'm not a merciful guy. I am not a merciful guy, but I so want to pray that pain away. I get so tired of hearing guys, not tired, I... I I hurt for them, and I want, Lord, take this away. But then God says, you know, that's not my will, and it's not your job. Because I know what I'm doing. Just love them, support them, and encourage them. Abide in him. It's a command. But it's a command we should want to obey because the end result of it is so incredibly positive. It will change your life. It will change my life. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. I thank you so much for the fact that you are in complete control. And Father, I confess to you this morning that there are days I've wanted to run from the pruning process. I want to produce fruit, but I want to produce fruit with no pain. I want the gain with no pain. And it just doesn't work that way. And so, Father, I, I, I confess that to you. I confess that the things that you do in my life, I don't always want and I don't always embrace. But part of abiding in your son, Jesus Christ, is to abide in your love and understand that your love is greater than my pain. And that you love me sometimes through the pain and you change me through the pruning process and the refining process. And you are out to perfect me. You are out to make me into the likeness of your son. And to do that, you have to cut away some things that are in the way. And so, Father, we, we come to you. And I pray that every one of us in this room this morning would say, yes, I want to abide. 
I want to remain. I want you to be my dwelling place. I want you to, I'm going to hang on to you with both arms and let you do what you're going to do to make me who you want me to be. Father, use this this morning. Change our lives. Help us to be men who abide, men who remain, men who stay connected to Jesus Christ regardless of the circumstances. And like the disciples, we will change the world. We will radically change this world. And it needs changing. So, Father, thank you. I lift up these guys. I pray that you would work in their lives, change them, mold them, make them into the men that you want them to be. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, and our coming King. Amen. All right, guys. Pick up your lesson, and next week we are going to...